So as we pick it up in chapter 2, that's very important because it, it deals with falsehood and false teachers and just right on the heels of how important it is that God's word is God-breathed, then we get the word that is not God-breathed in contrary to his word. So it's a contrast. And what we studied a couple weeks ago sets us up for a proper context of what we're going to look at tonight. So we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 2, 2 Peter. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, or false teachings, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. One of the unfortunate truths and realities of the human experience is falsehood. Now, we know that the devil is the father of lies, and he's a liar from the beginning. And we know that the devil goes to church. We know that the devil, uh, we read in other places in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle mentioned deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. The apologist Hank Hanegraaff said decades ago that when you hear a false teacher, the most dangerous of all false teachers, you don't know they're most dangerous of teachers in the first minute. But by the 15th minute, he will say something, she will say something that is wrapped in truth but is a great falsehood that confuses the truth. And that's the danger of false teachers. As there was false prophets in the Old Testament, and there were false prophets in the Old Testament, throughout the journey, particularly of Israel, with false prophets, <clears throat> there are many of them. They're listed by name. They're sometimes generically referred to. There's always people that will surround themselves with someone who will tell them what they want to hear with falsehood to encourage them in pursuit of evil and somehow seek to justify themselves before God or think they're right with God in the pursuit of that evil. It's, it's human nature because we have to live with our conscience. So there are many false prophets listed by name in the Old Testament. When God had that covenant with Israel, he warned the people about false prophets. And he told them, you can know a true prophet from a false prophet by some pretty simple things. The first thing is, a false prophet will indeed contradict the word of God. So if you know God's word, you will recognize falsehood. The most vulnerable person to a false prophet, or in the New Testament, a false teacher, is someone who doesn't know the word of God. If you know the word of God, you will recognize falsehood contrary to it. You'll be like, no, that's not what the word of God says. I remember reading a book of a popular person, a TV preacher, years ago, and it was kind of his worldview, and he would grab scriptures to put in there. It was a very popular book. He'd, uh, he would grab scriptures to put in there to make a point. And I noted in that book, I highlighted every scripture he quoted, and every one of them was out of context. Every one of them. So the first thing we realize, if we know God's word, we will recognize those who teach something contrary to God's word. Uh, another thing about false prophets, Paul the Apostle uh, talked about how they, they, false apostles, that they can have lying signs and wonders. So they can even have things that appear supernatural or emotionally that can affect you like uh, a deceiving spirit. Like, so there's supernatural power behind false prophets in many cases with deceiving signs and wonders. In other words, the devil does supernatural things just like James and Janus did there in the house of Pharaoh in the Old Testament or they could turn water to blood. It didn't help anything, but they could. They could turn sticks into snakes. And it's like 
the dark kingdom has dark power and false teachers often have lying signs and wonders that accompany their teachings. So that's something, uh, false prophets in the Old Testament and false teachers in the New Testament. We're told that. We're warned that by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. We will see later on in this book, another thing that false prophets and false teachers do is they twist scripture out of context to their own destruction, which is what I mentioned earlier. They twist scripture out of context. It's like, no, that's not, that's not the right context. See, hermeneutics is a study of scriptures in a scientific method. And the foundation of hermeneutics, the first point is, God says what he means, he means what he says. So common sense is the best sense. A second thing we see in hermeneutics, the study of scripture, is the context. The historical context. What's God saying? What's the context of what he's saying to illuminate and give understanding? Another thing we see is that scripture interprets scripture. So if you, uh, for example, when we studied Luke, where Jesus said, unless you hate your father, mother, brother, sister, and so on, you're not worthy to be a disciple, that trips a lot of people up, like, why why would God ever teach hate? He's, He's not teaching hate. Because the whole Bible says that God is love. It's in his character. The marks of discipleship is love. So you take the fullness of scripture to interpret that passage, because someone could take that passage and go, God wants you to hate your family. That's not true. God does not want you to hate your family. He wants to be supreme, supreme in your life as the first love of your life, and then everything else will be in order. You, and if you're not passionate for the Lord first, and you put someone else or anything else before the Lord, that becomes idolatry. That's the context of that passage we saw in Luke. So that's an example of Scripture interpreting Scripture. What false prophets did and what false teachers do is they twist Scriptures out of context. And they do. But one other thing that you have for sure to identify a false prophet or a false teacher is they say things are going to happen that do not happen. That was the, back in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. God said through Moses, like, hey, you'll know false prophets because when they say they're, they're saying this, and if it doesn't come to pass, you know that I didn't send them, and they are a false prophet. So this is really easy for identifying many mainstream uh, Christian cults, if you will, because there are many people who have said things uh, whether it's Christian science, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, they said many different things on behalf of God from their perspective that have not come to pass. And most particularly, the Jehovah's Witnesses have been doing this for a long time. Their doctrine's always changing because uh, John Charles Russell said things would happen that did not happen. So they put a spin on it, but if you just Take God's word at face value. It says if they say it's, they're speaking for the Lord and it's the end of the world in the early teens of the, 19th, you know, the 20th century and it doesn't happen, that's a false prophet, okay? So it's not, it's, it's not difficult, per se, to discern false teaching and false prophets. The foundation, know the word of God and you'll recognize that which is not the word of God. Uh, test all things. So uh, do not despise prophecies, as the Bible says, but test all things and hold fast to that which is good. Know that the devil has lying signs and wonders. So signs and wonders don't supersede the word of God. The word of God supersedes signs and wonders. If someone does a sign and wonder and then says something that's contrary to the word of God, that's a deceiving spirit and a doctrine of a demon. And we're told to be very careful of that. And to note that people twist scripture to their own destruction. So the proper context of scripture. And it is. God says what he means, it means what he says. And if someone says that something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, that's false prophecy. That's a false teacher. So uh, it's a reality. Now, there's a good application here for us. All we have to do is look in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, 
when Paul the Apostle came to the Jews after Thessalonica, Jeremy and I just taught some Thessalonica on Saturdays, um, he came there in his second missionary journey to Berea. And he read the scriptures and he expounded on them how Jesus Christ fulfilled these scriptures. And it says that the Bereans were noble-minded, more fair-minded, and they searched the scriptures, they looked at the scriptures contextually to see if what Paul said was true, and they found that it was true. In other words, the gospel being preached by Paul was sound doctrine in fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. It was, as the book of Acts chapter 2 calls, the apostles' doctrine, and it stood the test of scripture. So you test all things, and you hold fast that which is good. And the safest foundation to be in healthy churches, obviously, is the teaching of the word verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. It's less likely. People can still get off, so don't get me wrong. People can still get off, but expository verse by verse teaching generally preserves a proper context where when I get up here to teach, I don't wonder what I'm teaching. I'm going to teach Second Peter chapter 2 in its proper context. Now, if I'm always doing topicals, and I'm not against topicals, obviously, I've done some at various times. But if I want to teach on, let's say, uh, marriage, then I can have my points that I think I want to teach on in marriage, and then I go try and find Bible verses to match it up. Or in some cases, you see quite often with TV preachers, they just give a topic without even a Bible verse to support it. And sometimes they give a Bible verse, but it's not really the right context. It's not really the right context. So the safest thing of all is for you personally to study the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, with study guides, if you like, you know. Uh, most false teachers don't go for that stuff. And then it'll help you discern. And you can be like a Berean and be more noble-minded, fair-minded, and say, yeah, this is, this is true. And, of course, God's word confirms his word, and it builds us up and reproves us and corrects us. So um, it's a reality. There are false prophets that the people of Israel were held accountable to to recognize in their day truth from falsehood or like when Elijah said, hey, if the Lord's Lord, worship him. If Baal's God, then worship him. But choose this day whom you will serve, right? Like Joshua did the same thing. You can worship the gods here, or but as for me and my house, family, we're going to serve the Lord. But you must choose whom you're going to serve. So inevitably, every human soul has to decide, are we going to follow the truth of God's word to guide and govern and direct our lives and submit ourselves to the spirit of God in that for the blessings that are there, because God said to Joshua, do not depart from the words of this law. Uh, do not depart to the right or to the left, but obey it, and then you will prosper, and everywhere you go, you will possess the land. There's a blessing on the word, obeying the word. But if we depart for, for falsehoods, then we're going in a bad way. And 30 years of ministry, I've seen plenty of people go after false teaching, and it's it's grievous and it's, it's hard to see, but the surest foundation is to be a woman of the word of God and a man of the word of God and to grow in the word and just be built up in the word and let God speak to you from the word and you will recognize when it's not the word or out of context of the word or completely contrary to the word. So it's a reality and Peter is helping the, the purpose of this book is to remind the church of every generation through the Holy Spirit that it's an unpleasant reality but it's a, it's, a, it's a great reality, and it's just the truth. So for us, our application is just to um, test all things. You know, just, yeah, I mean, if you are in the Word of God regularly, you will generally recognize what's not the Word. We pick up in verse 4. 
you'll recognize false teaching when you see it. <clears throat> For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning to them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority, they are presumptuous, self-willed, they're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Let's stop there. So in verses 4 through 11, we have three examples of God's judgment in time past. Well, outside of time and in time past. So the first one is the judgment of the angels. That's outside time, space, and matters. We know it. That's something that happened outside our dimension that affects our dimension. Satan is there in the garden in Genesis 3, but his fall from heaven is recorded for us in other passages of Scripture Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jesus himself said, um, I saw Satan cast out from heaven. We know through the prophets that Satan was lifted up in pride, thinking I will do this and I will do that and I will become God. So we know pride was his original sin, that he was created in beauty. He was the most beautiful of angels in heaven. If you harmonize scripture, it would seem that, um, you know, Michael and Gabriel and Lucifer were three archangels that were of great glory. In the book of Revelation, we saw this. There are different angels that do different capacities and have different roles in heaven. They are, of course, alien uh, entities to our world. This world was not created for angels, but they assist the crown jewel of God's creation, humanity, for those who have faith in him. We also know it's implied from the book of Revelation that a third of the angels were cast out from heaven when Satan fell. And that's what Paul describes in Ephesians as principalities and powers in, in, in heavenly places. We know that they are much more powerful than us. They truly are alien. We also know that one angel on God's side can wipe out 185,000 Assyrian troops who besieged the city of Jerusalem. We know the angels do great things. They're sent as ministering spirits to those who serve the Lord. They're of another dimension, but they function in ours. We also know that angels can take on human form because we see that in uh, the Old Testament and we're told to be aware of it in the New Testament. The original rebellion where there was judgment came outside our dimension when Satan was judged and cast out with no opportunity for restoration or reconciliation to God who made him. He is the ultimate alien being of the most ugly proportion imaginable. His fall from beauty to what he really looks like is more sinister and more ugly than anything any of us could conceive in anything we've ever seen in a Hollywood movie or anything that would be considered of alien, gore nature. He is the destroyer. He is the accuser of the brethren. He's the ultimate slanderer. He's evil. He's absolute evil and rebellion against God. And everything he does is meant to destroy God's plans in his universe in billions of galaxies 
would center on this planet and what was accomplished through his son on this planet. Everything Satan does is contrary to God's glory, his love, his grace, his mercy, his compassion, his goodness, which are evermore. Everything Satan does is contrary to that. Whereas God is merciful, Satan is unmerciful and ruthless. As God is a culture of life, Satan is a culture of death. As God is light and life and goodness, Satan is death and darkness and evil. And everything he wants to do in your life is to destroy you and everything good in your life and everything good that God wants to do in your life. We can never forget that. He is no friend. He is no one that can make an armistice deal with. He is the destroyer. And we are at war with him because the war between him and God existed before time, space, and matter or outside of time, space, and matter. And we entered into that war and there is no way around it. We were held captive by him to walk according to his sway of wickedness in our life with no chance of victory over him, the grave, or sin. But when Christ died on the cross, he set us free from the power of the devil that we don't have to be in bondage to him. So sound doctrine and sound teaching is deliverance from the devil. It is deliverance from the fleshly, uh, the body of flesh that produces sin in rebellion to God and ensnares us in bondage. And it's deliverance from the fear of the grave. It is the restoration of lost glory. Satan was judged and his time is limited. And the book of Revelation makes that very clear. There is a judgment on Satan. And there in Revelation 20.10, we read that he is cast into the lake of fire over. That is his end. He is judged, and there is no second chance for him. So that's one example of God's judgment being used here to warn us. The second one is Noah. Now, we know in the time of Noah that the thoughts and intents of man's heart were only evil. Everything was skewed. Everything was perverse. Everything was a crude, vulgar, lewd comment or perspective. There was no decency. There was no moral character. There was, it was such depravity that there was no coming back from it. There was no way to redeem it. It was gone. Humanity was so gone. And apart from Noah finding grace in the eyes of the Lord, there's just, it was an implosion of humanity completely given over to total depravity, like Romans 1 warns about, but probably even worse because it's a primeval world. It was a different world. People lived longer, right? The planet was in a better uh, ecological system. It was an incredible planet. And our planet as we know it, with all of its weather systems and all the different terrains, it's all the result of a post-flood world. God judged that world in a total global flood where only eight human beings survived that. And he did it to save humanity. He did it so we could be here as the sons and daughters of the three descendants of Noah. And all of us trace our genealogy back to Adam because we're all sons of Adam and in Adam all die. And the second Adam, Christ, redeems us from that curse of sin that we're born with in our system, in our body, to rebel against God. But we all go back to the dawn of creation. Every one of us is a DNA descendant from Adam, the first man. Every one of us. And every one of us from this young earth come through one of those three sons. Our forefathers were on that ark and they were delivered by the living God. He sealed them in that ark to protect them from the judgment. And having recently listened to a message by Pastor Chuck from the 70s on this chapter, Genesis 6, I just was 
as if the hair was standing up on my skin. It was so powerful and so authoritative of absolute truth. It just reminded me of these matters. That God judged the world for sin so we, in spite of our sin, could have a second chance and be here tonight through faith in Jesus Christ in obedience to the scripture and be born again through faith in Jesus Christ by the living God. And we say, amen. Because that could have been the end, but it's not. And every good thing we've enjoyed in life is a result of the goodness of the Lord in our life, the love we experienced, the love we've given, the beautiful sunrises we've watched, the beautiful dawns, the joyful moments, all the the good things and the difficult things of life. We live by the grace of God because God preserved Noah through that flood. God sealed Noah. And we're told in Hebrews 11:6 that by faith, Noah built that ark for the saving of his household and became an heir of righteousness. And we are descendants of that inheritance. As the church of Jesus Christ on September 25th, 2018. It's beautiful. We're here. But God judged the world. Now, next chapter, we'll see that people want to forget that. We'll get that next week, chapter 3. But he did. And all true science confirms a cataclysmic event and a global flood and a post-flood ice age. The real science, true science confirms that. And all the great scientists in human history recognize that as well, if you study their writings. It's only demented, evil men, demonically deceived, that come up with other bizarre conjectures of man's origin, purpose, and destiny. It's just demented, dark, demonically deceived men. Let God be true and every man a liar. And he judged his planet with a global flood. And we're here because of the grace he showed Noah. Then there's a third judgment in time, space, and matter in the post-flood world, Sodom and Gomorrah, which is an interesting judgment. Now, that region there by the Dead Sea is the lowest place on planet Earth. It is the deadest place on planet Earth. And it is a testimony to all generations. In fact, it says that right here, that it became an example to those who would afterward live ungodly. Now, we know that they were completely given over to sexual morality, all kinds of sexual morality, from uh, homosexuality to heterosexuality outside of marriage. It was just, they were out of control. They were just out of control. They were so out of control, when there's an angel in their midst, they want to have homosexual uh, rape with that angel. Remember the angel blinded them? When, they, when they, the, the mob of men came to rape the angels, they're at, at Lot's house. And Lot's like, no, 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 I'll give you my daughters. You know what you're doing. And, and the angels just went, boom, and blinded them. And it happened. And they were judged. And they were destroyed. And if you go on a tour of Israel and you go down to the Dead Sea, you got to think about like, wow, something went down here. You can feel it. Like, there's a spot. If you go somewhere where certain heavy things happen in human history, you know, you can, I've been to Gettysburg, right? So I can picture where Pickett's Charge took place. You go right there to Gettysburg or day two when the Wisconsin Regiment came out of the trees over here on the north end of the city. Like, there are places you can go. Like Pearl Harbor, right? You're just like, wow, it really, you know, it really happened. Like, this really happened here. Like, it really happened. Well, I've been to the Dead Sea. One day of my life in 92. And I was like, if there's a deader place on the planet, I've never seen it. It really happened. God judged and wiped out those people. As an example, not a global judgment, but as an example 
of his judgment on unrighteousness. God is gracious and merciful, and rarely is his wrath revealed in time, space, and matter because he's moved by mercy and grace. The cross is also a place of his judgment, of course, on his son for us. Now, here's what's interesting about these three things. I mentioned Jesus said, I saw Satan cast out. So Jesus was there in the judgment of Lucifer and the angels being cast out. Jesus said before he returned that it would be like as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days the Son of Man is coming. Jesus taught the global flood and affirmed it in Noah. In fact, he said, when you see the same behavior in your generation, you will know my return is near. And then he also ascribed the historical uh, reliability of Sodom and Gomorrah as well when he said, if the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had heard the preaching that you've heard, Capernaum and others, they would have repented. In fact, they'll rise up in, this, in the generation against you. He affirmed their judgment. Jesus Christ affirmed in his earthly teachings in the Gospels, Satan's judgment recorded here, the global flood recorded here, and the regional judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah recorded here. Jesus affirmed all three. They are there for an example and a warning. And we do well to heed them. And false teachers are, the context is false teachers, where they're going to face the consequences of it. But one thing that stands out as a, as a beacon of encouragement is verse 7, how God delivered righteous Lot. Now, we don't normally think of Lot being righteous because he was the nephew of Abraham there in the book of Genesis, those early chapters like 15 through 19 in that range. And um, his wife, of course, was destroyed in the judgment. Jesus affirmed her as well. We'll come back to that, I think. But he delivered Lot. And Lot was grieved and oppressed in the city he lived in. He, he chose to live in that community, but it's good to know that he was oppressed in that community. It's good to know that Lot wasn't at home and comfortable living in that community. It's good to know that he kept a contrast in his heart interiorly from what was going on with his society exteriorly, uh, externally, which is a good, a good lesson for us. And the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. So we might feel that we live in a world that's about to be judged with a global calamity, and we might feel that we live in Sodom and Gomorrah and the, the things that go on around us in our society, but nonetheless, we can take heart that God considered Lot righteous because of his faith, certainly not his actions, positional righteousness through faith, and that God was able to deliver him from that judgment, even as he's able to deliver his people in every generation from the judgment that could uh, bestow them. But ultimately for us, he knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. That is very comforting and encouraging to know that we're not given over. Just because we live in Sodom doesn't mean we need to live like Sodom. Let me say that again. Just because we live in Sodom doesn't mean we need to live like Sodom. And it's, that's very comforting, isn't it? It's very encouraging because he talks about the people, this type connecting these false teachers and these people like that. He says they, that they, they walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. That sounds like the United States of America across the board. The lust of uncleanness, despising authority, presumptuous and self-willed, speaking evil of dignitaries. Never in my time I've seen people so disrespectful for every form of authority in a society as we see in our society right now. I've never seen it in my entire lifetime or anything even remotely close to it. It is unbelievable, the disrespect, the demonic disrespect and slander for authority. Everything that God has ordained that should be good is considered evil, and all that is contrary to the character of God seems to be exalted as being good. And it just is what it is, but we take comfort because God delivered righteous Lot 
and he knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. So it's as, as bad as an environment can be, it's never about the environment. It's about the heart and how we persevere. And uh, he even talks about angels in verse 11 not even bringing accusations. There are people bringing a lot of accusations against a lot of people in this country. There are angels that wouldn't even bring those accusations. Think about that. There can be no good end for anyone who is a blasphemer or a slanderer. We do wise to filter our opinions, to fear the Lord, and know we'll give an account for every word, every idle word. You know, the man who controls, the woman who controls her spirit is better than one who takes a city. We know that from the Proverbs. And, and the real true mark of maturity in the Lord is the ability to forgive a wrong, to let it go, and not have to vindicate ourselves. And it's hard. Slander, disrespect for authority, and blasphemy are, are nothing new under the sun. The Nazis in the brown church, were, they did this regularly. For Pete's sakes, Jezebel did this against Naboth in his vineyard, right? Get some scoundrel men to testify wrongly against him, have him put to death, and then take the vineyard. There you go, Ahab, there's your vineyard. But what was the end of her? She was tossed from the window and ripped to shreds by the dogs without a proper burial. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end there by his death. And all things are naked and bare and open to him to whom we must give an account. There's not one evil thing thought, said, or done on this planet right now and in this country that those individuals will not be held accountable for, beginning with the person I see in the mirror and the people I see uh, in the news and next door. So I think we're just very wise to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God aspire to live a quiet, peaceful life, as it says in Thessalonians, and glorify the Lord and keep our eyes on the prize of heaven and being faithful. It's a difficult time we live in. But these brute beasts, verse 12, these, these like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deception while they feast with you. Having eyes full of adultery, they cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, fallen the way of Balaam, the son of Eor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice, restraining the madness of the prophet. So progressive thoughts here now that these false teachers and this culture of people following false teachings, and by the way, this land is filled with people following false teachings concerning Jesus. That goes without saying. I think we all know that. But they're like brute beasts, um, and they speak evil of things they do not understand. So falsehood does this. These people speak in evil. You know, almost all Americans consider themselves religious too, by the way. I think most of us know that too. Like Most Americans say they believe in God. While they attack other people who believe in God, they just, it's crazy how those who reject the scriptures or twist the scriptures attack those who actually believe and stand on the scriptures. I, mean, I know you know what I'm talking about. But they, they speak evil. They speak evil of things they do not understand. People blaspheme against the Lord. When we reduce Jesus Christ and his righteousness and his glory to the sinful nature of man, we are blaspheming the Lord. And those who do so in the pulpit will receive a stricter judgment. 
they don't understand. They're, they're self-deceived. And they will utterly perish. And they will receive the wages of unrighteousness, verse 13. They are, in the name of Jesus, they're there with eyes full of adultery, enticing unstable souls. Hearts trained in covetous practices. Many people see ministries as chances to fleece God's flock. And they've forsaken the right way. Now, mainstream denominations in America, all, almost all of them come from a historically sound foundation of what we call evangelical Christianity, believing the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God. But almost all these mainstream denominations have died as they've embraced modern liberalism and all the uh, sinful nature of that that they ascribe to God, saying that God made people that way, that God doesn't judge that stuff, that we're not accountable for that stuff. And they, they lose, having a form of godliness, they deny the power thereof. And this is what we see in our land on a large scale. And we can't let it discourage us. Um, even in the Old Testament, when there was false prophets, there were people like Jeremiah that were true prophets who were persecuted, attacked, be, uh, beaten, and imprisoned and thrown in the mire because they were true prophets. You just because just the false prophets or false teachers have a grander stage, travel in higher circles, if you will, and are more accepted by the people, you can't let that discourage us from being true to God's word and being true teachers of God's word in our life and how we carry ourselves. Let God be true in every man a liar. There's nothing hidden that won't be revealed. Balaam is an interesting guy in verse 15. He, of course, is from the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. He was there when the Jews were in their wilderness wandering for the 40 years between Egypt and coming to the promised land under Joshua. Balaam comes out of nowhere, and he was bought uh, by Balak to come and curse God's people as they came through Moab, modern Jordan. And um, he was paid money to curse Israel, and he couldn't curse them because he said, you can't curse my people. So three times he blessed Israel, and Balak said, you've cost yourself all the money I was going to give you because you didn't curse him. But we know from the scriptures that Balaam came up with a way to curse Israel. What he did is he, Balaam told Balak, look, I can't curse them, but if you can get these men to sleep with the women and worship their idols, then God will judge them just to judge them because he will chasten whom he loves. So Balaam came up with this idea that that's what he would do, and that's what he did. And they gave Balaam the money. And so he thought he pulled it off like, hey, you can't go to hell on a technicality, right? I bless God's people. I gave information to the enemies, but I didn't do it. It's just going to happen. But of course, we know in the book of Numbers that Balaam was indeed struck down by God. You just, you just got to think like when God sends you a don- when your donkey talks to you, like, okay, first of all, God can do anything he wants. I always ask myself, was it God taking over the animal and speaking through the donkey? Or was it God actually equipping the donkey to communicate? You ever think about that? See, like dogs communicate. You can buy books, what your dog wants to tell you, Right? I mean, Caesar Milan's like, hey, the dog whisper, it's like, I'm the leader of the pack. You know, like, and so, you know, animals are smart. What do people do? Like, when my, my, my daughter Leah wanted to be a dolphin trainer at SeaWorld, her major was not going to be biology, it was going to be psychology. Because if you work with the animals, even the SEAL trainers, and all that, you have to learn uh, the behavior and how to understand the communication of the animals. Those animals communicate. Daisy Dolphin at SeaWorld, she communicates. She does, and she does four backflips when you call her to, right? So I always crack up on Balaam and the donkey. It's just, you read the story, it's like, and he's not even phased by like, oh my goodness, my donkey's talking. He's like, no, you stupid donkey, do what I tell you to do. Like, he actually, like, he didn't even come up for air. He's just like, what, are we doing this right now? Oh yeah, we're doing this right now. 
Like he just goes right at it with his donkey. It's like donkey's like, I'm lightning good to you. Like, what's your problem? You know, like it's like he doesn't like, oh my goodness, the donkey's talking to me. Fear of the living God, fall on your face. No, it's just like, you stupid donkey. I'm the boss here. You're the donkey. Like they didn't even come up for air because he's the the Bible says the madness of the prophet. <laughs> I just think if you ever if you ever have an animal talking to you, you better stop and think really good about what the animal's saying. Because you're going to be saying something from the Lord like, stop, don't do it, more than likely, right? <laughs> uh, and you might not tell anyone he was talking to you either. Just take, take it face value what the Lord told you through your cat and go forward, okay? You follow me there? <laughs> All right. So he, it, it didn't, God did something so profound and supernatural, but it didn't stop Balaam from going to do this thing because of his covetousness for the wealth. That's the story. So we know that godliness with contentment is great gain. And we know that covetousness is the downfall of many a great woman or a great man. So a lot of false teaching is built around covetousness. But godliness with contentment is great gain. To be at peace with the Lord and the simple things. It always comes back to simple things with the Lord, the joy of the Lord. Then I read, we read on verse 17, we wrap it up. These, talking about these false teachers, are wells without water. Man, that's just, that's, not, that's a really bad title, wells without water. Clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they put the books out there, they got all the stuff. They allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, that is, you can have God and live in sin and do your own thing, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow having washed, or a pig having washed, to her wallowing in the mire. Well, it's never good when God compares anyone to a dog going back to vomit, or a pig to the mud, but that's what he does with these false teachers by his spirit to the uh, apostle Peter. Now, wells without water, that's what false teachers and, and, and ministries with falsehood look like. They look like a well, but they don't have water. It's just, it's just, it looks like this, but it doesn't have the substance behind it. A church should always be a place of truth. Truth centered on the person, the work, the character, the position, and the promises of Jesus Christ and his return. And the totality of scripture. And when it's anything less than that, it's just a well without water. This, the redemption of our souls is very costly. As costly as Jesus on the cross and the tomb being empty. And that needs to be the central foundational message of a church, its purpose, and its existence. And anything other than that is just a, a club of humanity, at best do-gooders, making time, space, and matter better, but having no value for eternity. It has to be the gospel. And those who have the gospel should be moved even greater than those without to do good things for time, space, and matter, not because we're trying to make the world a better place, which we want our legacy to be, but we're trying to bring the world to the ultimate better place, heaven itself, to the kingdom that's coming. Now, he does warn about, like, the, the danger when people have false liberty, when they say they have liberty, but we're told in a number of places in the Bible that not to let our liberty enslave us. And there's a great danger where liberty becomes something that becomes bondage. 
And there is this warning here about escaping things and then returning to those things. We think of Jesus when he told that uh, story about the house being swept and the demon being removed, but then he comes back and it's seven times worse. And that's a, a, a harmonious story to shed on this about going back. And of course, we close with Jesus himself saying, remember Lot's wife, because it was Lot's wife. In fact, she didn't just look back, she was going back. That's the context in the Hebrew. Lot's wife, who had been delivered from the judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're fleeing for their lives, even as judgment was happening, she could not go forward and embrace the new life and the good life that God had for her through his mercy. And by the way, it says there in Genesis that Lot found mercy from the Lord. The Lord was merciful to Lot. It says that in verse chapter 19, I believe it's verse 16. That God was merciful and he came and he got him. And Lot's wife, but she, she didn't just look back and become that pillar of salt. She turned back. She was going back. She was going back. Not just a dog to the vomit or a pig to the mud. She was going back. And those, she more than likely was hit by something. Because Pastor Chuck does this whole study of uh, the salt deposits in the Dead Sea and the eruption. You know how Chuck was brilliant and could explain all the science? That literally she just got blasted by the brimstone. Boom, right there. So not so much like her physiology turned to salt, but the context is that she was encased in the brimstone that was being exploded in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's that danger for the church in every generation to become desensitized to the reality of the Lord's return and to live today like we're going to keep on living forever and not live today like today could be our last day. We should always live with that sense that today could be our last day and to be moving toward the character and the glory of the kingdom as opposed to embracing the culture of the world which has nothing to do with his kingdom. Everything contrary to God's character and culture is in the lake of fire. Everything glorious and beautiful that has to do with the coming kingdom is in the coming kingdom. And that's where we want to be moving our affections, our pursuits, and our passions toward. We don't want to be the dog going back to vomit. We want to be the faithful men and women who are pressing on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we want to be sound in our understanding of God's word. We want to be obedient in our application of God's word. We want to be gracious in how we demonstrate God's word, merciful in example. But uh, by all means, we need the word of God to be governing us and staying very clear of anyone who would twist it, pervert it, change it, alter it, or be contrary to it, and just be found faithful. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word here tonight and its application to our lives.